looking for the king of podcasts, you're at the wrong channel. Looking for good ideas for life, you are far from good hands. If you think the listener is always right, you are far from the right place. Hosted by Northeasterner by birth, a rebel by choice. If you want a host that floats between love and madness, then play on and listen to Crazy Train Radio. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Mmm, I love scotch. I love scotch. Scotch is got scotch. Here it goes down. Down into my belly. Mm -mm Mmm-mm-mm. Don't mess with me, I'm one crazy mofo. This brand is truly exciting and so glad that they are starting to make a positive impact. Little Bean Soapery is a woman-owned small business based in Northeast Pennsylvania. Little Bean Soapery does so much as all products are handcrafted and offer many different things for both men and women. Soaps, scrubs, body butters, bath bombs, solid cologne and much more. Little Bean Soapery also does things for special occasions such as birthdays, Mother's Day, Father's Day and special seasonal gift sets. But also let's not forget large orders for party favours by request. The great things about all products is that they are crafted to be nourishing on the skin. If you wish to check them out please feel free to visit littlebeansoapery.com. Any questions, please feel free to also email littlebeansoapery at gmail.com for custom inquiries and or ask anything else you wish. Tell them that Elena from Crazy Train Radio sends you. Hi, this, uh, welcome to Crazy Train Radio. I'm David Morell, author of First Blood and Brotherhood of the Rose. I hope you enjoy the conversations here. Hey folks, it's your least favorite host in a podcast world, Croc, Jonathan Steele. And I'm Elena, your favorite host from the Emerald Isles. Boy, do we have a good one for you today. This Canadian-American novelist is probably best known for his debut novel, First Blood, that was later adapted as part of the 1982 film of the same name, which went on to spawn the successful Rambo franchise, starring Sylvester Stallone. However, it should be noted, this man has had a successful writing career on top of some other stuff I read, which we know everything on the internet is true, because he has written 28 novels. I know when I reached out initially last summer, he was in prep work for something else. 
and his work has been translated into over 30 different languages. This guest, author David Morrell. Good morning, David. How are you? Good morning. We're fine. Thank you. That's good to hear. So let me start there with works being translated into over 30 different languages. And we'll get into it, but I know you have a background in English as far as your degree. You were a professor and such. With some of your stuff being translated, and I don't know your expertise in other languages, has there been any miscommunication in terms of the story you put down in paper as far as uh, the books that have been released just because of uh, translation issues? Well, there's there there's no way for me to tell. The, the there's so many different publishers. Anecdotally, I have been told that I don't know if this still persists, but there was a time when Russian translations of my work, uh, particularly First Blood, um, were um, were altered. Uh, portions were cut out or portions were, portions were emphasized. Um, and I'm assuming uh, this was for uh, whatever political reason a Russian publisher would have against, say, the United States. And there's an interesting history here. Uh, in the day when the Soviet Union collapsed at in early 1990s, um, there was a uh, a rush from, from Russian publishers to make American uh, works available. And um, publishers wouldn't, tr authors wouldn't trust the, the Russians. What were they gonna pay in uh, ruples through a bank account? It was very unclear whether the, the remuner remuneration for the book would in fact materialize. So, Russian representatives would go to New York and have meetings with agents representing publishers with paper bags of cash and that they would then offer, here, here we go, here's the advance for the translation and they would give the agent this big wad of dollar bills or not dollar bills, but what have you, which, you know, looks suspiciously like a drug deal. And um, at one point, Someone in the business, uh, I, I want to make this very vague, asked, since it was cash, why didn't they just hide it and I wouldn't pay taxes on it? And I said, that's the craziest idea anybody ever recently made to me because there's no way I'm going to go to, to jail uh, for the amount of money that the Russians were willing to pay, which wasn't a lot for a translation. So it's interesting how times change. And, you know, that's an interesting thing there, and we don't have to get into specifics. But on the business side of things, and obviously you have agents and lawyers and all involved with that, but just the way I took it from that answer is, there's is there not a standard fee, per se, that they would pay? Like, say I wanted to take one of your books and publish it in, say, French-Canadian, because I know you're, like I said, you're from Ontario. Whatever I want to translate it to to sell uh -huh. your product, there's not a standard fee. Okay, David is expecting six. I'm just going to throw a number out here. A hundred grand for the rights to his book. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's not uh, a standard. Now, the, everything's a negotiation. A publisher, a foreign publisher, comes to an agent with an offer. Um, and it varies each, each, I'm very popular in Poland, for example. So my prices there are somewhat higher than they would be I, in France. Um, although they read me in France too, but Poland has been from the start, very, very loyal. Um, so we would, my agent, my foreign agent would expect that the, the offer there would be higher than I would get from other countries. And then we can either say, yeah, that's a reasonable offer because they're advances. So they, the money I receive for a book counts against sales. 
So the sales then have to reach an amount equal in terms of my royalties to the advance I'm paid before I'll get any more money. So, and, and publishing is a very narrow uh, industry. So if I don't, and, and just to use author speak, if I don't earn out my advance, if the publisher is in the negative column for a book that I authored, allowed them for a fee to publish, then the next time um, I'm offered something, the price will automatically be lower because then they'll go down below whatever I earned out on. So advances are uh, simply, um, a, a, a good faith gesture toward what they think the, the, the book will do. And they vary from country to country. And these days, unless you're John Grisham or Stephen King, no one is paying $100,000 for a foreign translation. Those days are long gone. Um, the, the foreign translation market is has narrowed considerably, uh, just as the market in the United States for certain kinds of books has narrowed. Uh, these days, uh, brand name books, books with social issues and books um, either written by women or featuring women, all uh, main characters are predominantly what drives the market. Interesting. And we can talk the business side of things all day, but that's not why I have you here today. Well, but- I, I- I get seldom asked that kind of question. So it's kind of, it's for me interesting how things work. Methods uh, are very interesting to me. And I know that for a lot of people, the whole publishing world is, is like, how does that work? So I, I enjoy talking about that kind of thing. Yeah. And the reason I asked it, and I appreciate you answering it to what we can, because I'm not the IRS. I don't care if you get, <laughs> A hundred grand, hundred million, whatever the case is for your advances. That's not my business, but I appreciate you answering it. The reason I asked it was I find it interesting that when people look at, oh, well, all authors or screenwriters or this or that or multimillionaires and whatever the case may be, they don't truly understand the behind the scenes side of things that you just explained there about the negotiations and everything else. But like I said, in the intro there, when I initially reached out to you through email and such last, I believe it was August, you were, and David was awesome with his response. Not only was he quick, but he was like, Hey, this is what's going on. You were doing research and starting to do some prep work for a new project. Have yeah. you announced that new project, and can you talk about that right now? Yeah, I'm I'm writing a, a western that's uh, could be called a western about westerns, uh, or a novel about the American West. Uh, the, my my goal is to see if I can write a western that doesn't feel like a genre book, but has the excitement we associate with a western. Very difficult project. I think the western is probably the, the most difficult genre to work in because there's so many. To, to use author speak, so many tropes that we're familiar with, such as the as walking down the street and fast drawing on each other, and and uh, readers or viewers sort of expect it, but my God, that's a cliche. So how do you create the same kind of excitement, but use a parallel situation? And I've been working on the book for two years, as I just described. The current market favors three categories, and it certainly doesn't favor Westerns. So at the moment, I'm writing the book for myself, which is what I've always done anyhow. I've never, with a few exceptions, I've never submitted an outline. I've always written the book and sent it in and say, publish it or don't publish it, but this is the book. I wanted to write. I mean, there are editing and all that. Um, But in terms of the overall concept, it's what I'm, I'm, you know, you think about a book taking a year of your life, by God, you better believe in it. And and if you're writing it to fulfill what you think would be money you earn in a a current market, that changes so fast. I have two mantras as a writer. One is be a first rate version of yourself. and And the other is don't chase the market. You'll always see its backside. So I'm, you know, basically writing the book for myself. I'm working every day and I might be able to finish it next year. It's, it's really hard to say until whatever's going on in the current market 
uh, rotates so that this kind of book would be available again. Interesting. Now, as far as doing research, because obviously you want to try to, and most authors I have spoken with want to try to be as accurate, whether it be historically or whatever the topic is correct as possible in telling their story. Now, do you find with yourself as far as when you're trying to do your homework and putting together your story, as far as the research side of things goes, do you find yourself that you are, or I should say, not that you are, but that you could end up going down a deep rabbit hole as far as you start looking at one thing. And I was a history major in school. Uh-huh. But it's a but it's like you start looking at one particular thing in the topic you're looking at then as you're reading stuff and trying to confirm it through other sources you find yourself well there's three other directions i can go here does that make sense Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely um i uh, another mantra that uh, sometimes you hear uh fiction uh teachers saying or, or editors or or whatever saying write what you know about well my mantra in that case is write what I want to know about. So I if often uh, for choosing a project that I'm willing to spend a year or more on, and I'm talking about writing every day, um, often it's because the subject interests me and I don't know anything about it and I want to know more. So um, I love the research and um, history is important to me. I've not always, I've written some historical novels. I've written some set uh, in, in the modern world. The, the goal is to serve the story. So in, if I'm working, let's say I, would, I were to write a medical story, which is, you know, would be very difficult for me. Um, I think it would be worth my while uh, to make uh, contact with physicians in the specialty that I'm writing about and uh, ask them if I could interview them or even in, in a remote way, see how their day works so that I'm writing about what they do with some degree of knowledge. And most people or most professionals in various ways are more than happy to respond to that because they see how how poorly uh, misinformed writers of many, uh, not all, I don't, but uh, let's say you're watching television. In most cases, medical shows are ludicrous. In most cases, legal shows are ludicrous. Um, We see uh, trials in which the defense attorney or the prosecutor walks right up to the witness stand and practically leans over into the witness box. If if someone did that in real life, they'd go to jail. It would be contempt at least. Um, So I tell writers, um, dig into the world you want to write about so you learn its vocabulary. And uh, it only makes sense that, um, that you would try to get those details right. There is a point where you have to say to yourself, if I'm ever gonna write the book, I have to, uh, I have to stop. My favorite um, illustration of this is I wrote three novels that are set in 1854, 1855 London. They're thrillers, they're, 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 almost, they're gothic and, and, and filled with action and filled with the sort of thing that I'm known for, say in my spy novels. Uh, and Queen Victoria appears uh, in the, those books. Um, and I needed to find a short form to describe her bearing. And uh, I, I was reading book after book after book about her. And I mean, I don't want to go into, in the book, in my novel, a, a, a ton of detail, but I just want to give the sense quickly of who she is. And I found this detail in like the fifth book I read about Queen Victoria, that her mother was very strict when Victoria was was little, let's say four or five years old, her mother took holly, the leaves of a holly branch are extremely sharp edged. 
very, they, they can stab you. And certainly you would not want uh, leaves of that under your collar. But Victoria's mother put leaves from a holly plant under Victoria's collar and they would sting her only if she slouched. So that if she stood absolutely with regal bearing, um, she would not be in pain. And that was the detail that I used to describe Victoria walking into a room. And it's very vivid. It brings in her youth. And, it, and, and at the same time, it's tactile because we can feel the imagined pain that Victoria would have felt if she hadn't been very erect in her stature. So um, um, at a certain point, uh, uh, that's what I look for. Those details that are kind of short form for a lot of larger things. And I want to mention this as far as the research for more modern times as well. And his David's book, I should say, The Shimmer in, from 2009, he actually went out and actually earned his FAA license to pilot. Yeah. His own small plane. So this is how much detail he goes into to well, I, learn subjects. I, I had to do it because the shimmer is about real life mysterious lights in a section of, of uh, Texas um, that's associated with a town called Marfa. And Marfa, uh, the film buffs will remember Marfa perhaps because the film Giant with James Dean, Rock Hudson, and Elizabeth Taylor was filmed around Marfa. Uh, but Marfa's other fame is that at night, around 9.30, just after dark, uh, mysterious lights appear in the sky and they grow, they, they shrink, they change colors, they blend, they hover. It's really quite a show. It's probably ball lightning, heat lightning, something like that. But boy, is it mysterious. In the Second World War, uh, there was a air base there, um, people being trained to, to go um, to the war, and uh, they used uh, single engine prop planes and used the lights as part of the training exercise so that the airplanes would fly toward where the lights were, and they had paper sacks of flour and they would drop, they, you can, on these planes, you can open a window and they would drop the, the paper sacks and in the day they'd come to see where the flower landed uh, and the splotches of white and try to figure out, you know, whether there was, where these UFOs, what on earth was going out of here. Well, I knew I needed that in the story. Uh, it, it, uh, and uh, so I saw no other alternative than at least to have some experience in a private plane, such as being um, at least in the passenger seat. But I, the more I thought about it, the more I thought I might as well get the training. And uh, it's a classic example of how research can make a person fuller by writing a book. So yes, I, I, I received my private pilot's license. Well, the other thing, as far as research goes, I found interesting. And again, it I don't think I've ever dropped this name on this particular show, but I guess it goes into my history background as well. But you actually, in the 80s, if I read that correctly, got some training with G. Gordon Liddy, who is known for Watergate and such. But he had his own private investigation and corporate security mm -hmm. schooling. So... What was it about going to learn from uh, Mr. Liddy? Well, he was seldom there. He lent his name. Uh, the school, um, the academy, as it was called, the G. Gordon Liddy Academy of Corporate Security and Private Investigation, was uh, taught only three times. It was three weeks, morning, new, uh, a day and night, uh, seven days a week. And um, it was taught three times and then for various reasons, it was no longer continued. I, I heard about it and got in touch with the people who were putting it together. This was in 1986, um, $3,600, which I have no idea what the comparable fee would be now. And that didn't include the airfare to get there, 
didn't include three weeks of hotel bills. It did not include three weeks of food. And the course was, con uh, was constructed with three days per expertise. And the instructors were former CIA, FBI, DEA, et cetera, et cetera, former Mossad and um, uh, U.S. Marshal, former U.S. Marshal. He, that, that man had been part of the detail that had been in charge of protecting John Hinckley after he shot President Reagan. And uh, so for three weeks, every three days, I learned all kinds of things uh, that um, I've used um, in my novels and continued my relationship with many of the instructors. And uh, Gordon would show up on the weekends um, to give a talk and, um, and answer questions. Um, and uh, I had the, I was, I did, I went to dinner with him on several occasions. And this is, uh, Gordon was interesting because he um, was not in person the person that people heard on his radio show or heard in public interviews. Uh, Gordon was extremely cultured. Uh, much of our dinner conversation was about opera. Uh, and I did not find him to be, um, for the most part at all, as people think of G. Gordon Liddy. Um, he had a persona and uh, he, he um, was true to it in public. I liked Gordon a lot and he was a pretty good writer. He wrote a couple of novels and he wrote um, a autobiography, which is pretty interesting as well. Well, I mentioned also during the introduction that you had done some other things. And I know you had taught at the University of Iowa, if I got that correctly. And yes, that's correct. Yes, you had or you have a background in English. You obviously did your master's talking about Hemingway style, and you actually went to Penn State to learn some things based on Hemingway scholar Philip Young. And what was it about Hemingway that really struck a chord for you? Well, we have to go back in time. Hemingway committed suicide it's been a while since I looked at, at the data, 61, I believe. And I was, um, I was very young, I was in high school, um, but I got, I was, became very interested in him because I never heard of him. Uh, and I began reading him. And uh, when I was in college, I, my BA is from a small college, now a university in uh, Southern Ontario called the, at that time it was St. Jerome's College, but now it's St. Jerome's University affiliated with the University of Waterloo. And they had a small library with a uh, obviously limited amount of books. But um, one day in my uh, early fourth year, I uh, asked if they had a book about Hemingway and they showed me a book, a very small book, uh, the first book that had been published about Hemingway by Philip Young. And Young wrote so wonderfully about literature, uh, so conversationally and at the same time so profoundly about literature that I um, was determined to meet him and study with him. So my, my wife, um, we'd been married a year. She was pregnant. She taught high school history. And I, I went home and I said to her, we're in a small apartment, I said, you know, I read this guy, Philip Young. What would you think if after the baby comes, you quit your job and we go to the United States and um, if I can, I'll study with Philip Young. And my wife, who is a, as adventurous as I am about finding our way in life said, sure, let's go. Um, and so eventually I, I was at Penn State. I became friends with Philip Young. I became his graduate assistant. And after his wife died, my wife became his, for lack of a better word, housekeeper. She, she took care of him. He had no, no one there. He had a, a young child. And, and uh, so we, in a sense, lived there. Well, we didn't sleep there. But for a year, I ate dinner every night with Philip Young. Uh, there are a few instances where a graduate student and a professor 
were that close. Um, and um, I did my master's thesis with Philip Young on Hemingway's style. And that, uh, my learning about style in that way, a very disciplined way, was helpful when, as I pursued my own career as, a, as an author. I don't write like Hemingway, but I learned things from Hemingway that I could adapt from my own uh, techniques. And obviously, like you said, you ended up coming to the States and studying with Philip and ended up getting your uh, citizenship in the yes. early 90s, if I read that correctly. So with all that being said, I should say, what was it about the New Mexico area to say where you could have gone wherever in this country? What was it about New Mexico that said, you know, this is where I would like to go for my family and everything else? We, we, we had been in Southern Ontario. We lived in uh, central Pennsylvania, a lovely, lovely, uh, they call it Happy Valley in the area yes. where State College. Um, it's a really a lovely area. Uh, and then we'd moved to Iowa, which is lovely in it, in it, in a different way. It doesn't have many mountains, but we, we really enjoyed Iowa a lot. Uh, and however, in 1987, our 15-year-old son, Matthew, died from a rare bone cancer called Ewing sarcoma. And uh, we stayed there in shock for a time. By then, I had uh, resigned my professorship. And uh, we stayed there in shock. Uh, the numbness is, is overwhelming. I've written a lot about grief, uh, especially for grief for a child. And um, in 1982, 1992, we realized that our son, if he had lived, would have been long gone. He'd have been out of high school. He'd be in college and he would have been on with his life. And uh, my wife said, I like to quote my wife a lot. She said, it's time for us to begin act three. And so um, we looked around for somewhere else to live um to 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 further that attempt to make ourselves fuller uh which is the whole point of my books and um there weren't a lot of choices if you live in in iowa or pennsylvania heavily wooded sections you know you can go to the seacoast or you can go to the mountains of, of the west and uh we had um chance to watch a television show called This Old House, uh, a PBS show in which um, uh, the, the, the people involved would go from city to city and renovate a classic house typical of the architecture of the region. And we watched, uh, I knew nothing about Adobe Pueblo houses uh, and the distinctive architecture that's in the northern part of New Mexico. I had no idea. I thought Santa Fe was like Phoenix, uh, a low desert and very flat. Well, there are mountains near Phoenix, but I had no idea Santa Fe was in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains at 7,000 feet. And uh, we came to Santa Fe for um, my birthday just to look around and we took to it so swiftly. Uh, again, this is a pattern in our lives that um, on July 5, we were living here. Um, and it, it, they call it, obviously every area has its own appeal. I'm not suggesting where we are is any better than anywhere else, but it suits us to be near the mountains at an altitude of 7,000 feet where the air is very clear um, and where many, many, many Westerns have been filmed. Um, and we just felt uh, as if reincarnation were a real thing. We felt as if we had found the place we were meant to be. And that's the key that everybody's going to go with what works for them, whether it's a living situation, work situation, and whatever angle you want to wish or look at. But you mentioned your son, Matthew, there with the Ewing's uh, sarcoma. Now, I hit it seen and read that you had a granddaughter that had the same disease 
or yes. same form of cancer. Yes. And obviously I'd be curious now as a cancer survivor myself, was that something that was, is that a genetic type of disease in terms of that runs in families and such? Uh, until recently, not a lot of uh, was known about Ewing's. It, uh, when Matt had the disease and didn't survive, um, it was basically a category. And these days, it's in. It might have changed since I, since Natalie's illness. Uh, but there were four categories of the disease, and it's very rare uh, in the United States. Per year, there might be only 250 people who come down with the disease. There's so little research been done on it that there's no way uh, for us to find out whether this is an inherited disease. Um, we were told by several specialists that it was not inherited, that there, that there, that the in the families that they have studied where Ewing's occurred, it was exceedingly rare for another person in the descendant part of the family to come to, to have the disease. Matt, Matt's disease, the tumors grew in his ribs. In Natalie's case, they grew in her hips. Um, and we're, um, we're very uh, connected with uh, research in the disease. Uh, when Matt uh, uh, went through chemotherapy, uh, uh, various uh, protocols were introduced that were, were used for the first time on him. And they discovered that some had a quick effect, but not a lasting effect. So that in two weeks, a tumor would shrink remarkably. But if the same chemotherapy were then used again, the tumor would come back. So that there had to be, uh, you'd use that for two weeks and use something else for two weeks and use something else for two weeks. Uh, Ewing's is a very aggressive cancer. And um, when Natalie was being treated by God, some of the protocol was what had Matt had. She died, God bless her, in 2009. Matt died in 1987. Some of that protocol was still being used. Um, and we've, we have a, a fund at the University of Iowa hospitals and clinics the Matt Morell and Natalie Sanchez Children's Cancer Research Fund, in which we've been able to channel a lot of money in various ways to it. And one of the things they do in their in the studies is you're trying to find a way, so because chemotherapy is, it makes you sick. Mm -hmm. um, and if, if they can find a way to reduce the nausea, uh, then perhaps the patient could receive a, a stronger, more effective a dose of the of the chemotherapy so there's there's we're helping fund some research into how to reduce nausea in uh, chemotherapy for children it's uh, um and i've i've done a lot i i give talks to grief groups and i've written about grief both in nonfiction and in fiction and it's a topic that i'm very uh very concerned about and i just found out this this is to me is inspiring i found out that there are camps in the summer for children who have lost parents or lost brothers and sisters or close friends where children in grief, only children in grief can go to these camps and have, because it's very, I mean, it's so crushing the emotions and have the experience of freedom with other people understand what it's like and then have periodically sessions where they talk about how they're feeling. And I got very excited when I heard about this and we recently donated a fairly large amount of money to the organization uh, to help fund it. And my 18-year-old uh, granddaughter who, who has had that experience firsthand um, is thinking about maybe she'll be a counselor at, at one of these camps. So I, I was very excited when I heard about this. Yeah, I, I actually like that concept that, especially when you're dealing with kids, you know, there's times that as adults, we have trouble in certain aspects, processing things with all that going on. So I actually really appreciate that concept that they have these camps and stuff that kids can go and feel their way out, I guess is the best way to say. 
no. with people with similar circumstances. It's, yes. The, the, the key, if, if, if you have someone you profoundly love who dies, your grief is for life. Yeah. Oh, and I hear this business about closure and I, I, it makes me upset because my son died in 87. I think of him every day. I think of Natalie every day. Um, and, and there is no closure. What there is is adaptation and perhaps modifying your life so that you can help other people in pain. Yeah. Uh, and um, just to go back to what I was saying about the camps, anybody interested, they're called camp camps experience. If someone, if someone's interested in this camps experience, you can Google that and, and learn more about the organization. And I hope it's okay to mention it here because you've talked about speaking about grief and you have background training in this as well, not only from personal experience, but you've learned as well. If people would like to reach out, davidmorell.net, I'm sure you can point them in directions as well, well whether it be these camps or just from stuff you had learned yeah, over time. Uh, I, I mean, it's, you know, the, the, I have a book called Fireflies in which I talk about about a lot, a lot about this, um, and um, people who have lost children, either grandparents, parents, or siblings who have lost people close to them, die. There is an organization called the Compassionate Friends, which is very helpful to my wife and I. It's the largest grief group in the in the uh, world. Uh, the Compassionate Friends, and uh, they have in many cities. Uh, places at groups where you can you know participate it's a it's um it's something that people don't talk about particularly men they they tend to say oh that's i can handle this and then they start you know hitting the drugs and hitting the, the, the booze and and the marriages fail and all that because people won't talk and admit that this is hard um and uh women i've found in my experience handle grief a lot better than men do um, because in the United States at least you're not allowed you're not supposed to show emotion and that's one reason why I created Rambo and why I talk so much about grief and particularly panic attacks whenever I give talks to grief groups the largest group I ever addressed was 2,000 weeping parents um, it, that, that that was an experience and I always, the way these things work is you have to establish your credentials. So I tell the story about Matt and Natalie in a short way. And then I say, well, so you know that I know what I'm talking about when I speak to you. And then I always say, so how are the panic attacks going? And uh, people who are weeping are suddenly laughing because they know what I'm talking about, that panic attacks are the great burden of people in grief. Um, and nobody wants to talk about them because the, people they feel so helpless, they're embarrassed. Uh, so um, it's a big topic. And uh, I, I uh, in some ways, that's what I took away from my experience is to try to, to talk about this in an open way so that people would feel better able. I find if you say talk about something, it, you can handle it better. If And the thing I want to take away from this part here, folks, is that whether it is you dealt with illness or loss of a children or child and or grandchild like David or whatever the case is or sibling or whatever the situation, because everybody's situation is different. Exactly. Please don't hesitate to reach out for help if you think you need it. It, there's nothing wrong for reaching out for a hand. There are organizations, there are different ways that folks can address, whether it's the panic attacks, as David says, or grief or whatever the case may be, there is help out there. And I hope people are willing to address it, which I think it's a big thing for mental health there, that people are starting to look at it and address it. But like David said, that there's not as much or not many people addressing it, especially in the States because of that fear. But I hope people will not be afraid to reach out because it's okay. 
Well, if you, you know, if you're married and you want to save your marriage, by God, you better address the issue because people grieve at different, the number of divorces I've seen because of uh, grief, um, because people grieve in different ways at different times and they don't talk about it and they won't give each other the room. Um, I, I, it's a sad, sad uh, series of events I've seen. So, Well, folks, it's okay to address these, not only for yourself, but for your relationships as well. But you mentioned a name there, Rambo, as part of your story, the story you told as far as grief and just everything that goes with it. When you wrote the novel in 72, or released it, I should say, did you ever expect it to be what it has become? It would have been impossible um, to expect anything. Uh, the market in those days, what I wanted to do was find a new way to write action. Um, based upon my Hemingway research, and at the same time address what I thought was a near civil war that was occurring in the United States at that time, because partly because of the Vietnam War and partly because of civil rights. Um, and First Blood, the novel, is basically an allegory about two sides that don't want to understand each other and lead to catastrophe. Uh, with the system, um, Colonel Troutman, um, finally, um, the system finally destroys Rambo at the end of the of the of the novel. And um, I there there was at that time, in terms of what we call a non pulp book, uh, one that actually tried to be a novel. Um, First Blood probably had more action than any other novel written in English to that time. And uh, my agent said, you know, there's the market for action books, you know, it's paperback and this is, this is a whole different, more serious book. He said, I might be able to get you a paperback sale, but we'll see. And it turned out that within six weeks, he was able to sell it as a hardback and uh, came at the right time. I'm saying that in a, in a strange way in history uh, where in 1972, the book had been published in 68, it might have disappeared, it might have been rejected, but by 72, the kinds of issues that I address in First Blood to do with um, different attitudes toward what the United States is, um, they were ready to be discussed. So a first novel normally disappears, but this novel attracted an unusual, unusual amount of attention. It was reviewed in every major place that a book could be reviewed. And it had a really good paperback sale. It had a movie sale all right away. And that's exceedingly unusual. And, uh, but then it took 12, no, 10 years for the movie to get made. And, um, you know, things take their own time. Um, when Edgar Rice Burroughs was writing Tarzan, he had no idea what would happen. Um, when, um, Ian Fleming was writing James Bond. He had no way to tell what was happening. And those early books in both cases were modest successes. Uh, it's, it's interesting to me, Rambo is frequently linked in this way that from novels into movies and then into international recognition, there were five big names in the 20th century. Um, and they would be Sherlock Holmes, uh, Tarzan, James Bond, Rambo, and Harry Potter. Uh, and in every case, those authors had no way to imagine what was gonna happen with those characters. And I often, when I sign a book for somebody, I say best wishes from Rambo's father, hmm. uh, because I think of myself as, as Rambo as being a child who grew up and went his own way. And I'm you know, related in the same way that a parent is related to a, a child who grew up. And it's interesting to me the different directions the character took. Well, obviously, it's its own beast in terms of taking a novel into a script. And obviously, there's been, we're talking almost 40 years at this point of the Rainbow character and such. How much involvement did you have with the rest of the series and also in terms of converting, a, especially with the first one, converting a script from your novel? Well, it's very seldom that the author of a novel is asked to participate 
in the movie making process. Um, the only two that I think of automatically who had great careers, both as novelists and screenwriters are Michael Crichton uh, and particularly uh, William Goldman who received several Academy Awards uh, for being, uh, for adapting his novels and other novels. Um, the, the, so the, the, to answer the question, I had nothing to do with the adaptation of First Blood, but I had a good relationship with the producers and they would call me on occasion. Um, I didn't, there were two producers, Mario Kassar and Andrew Vanya. I, uh, I, one was Lebanese, the other was Hungarian. Um, and I didn't, I, I, I knew Mario sort of, I talked, we talked and all, but I talked more to Andy. And Andy, I remember called, this was astonishing that a producer would call the author. I mean, utterly, utterly unbelievable that the producer would call the author for advice. And the advice was, we, your novel is set in Kentucky. We're thinking of moving it to the Pacific Northwest because we can get better financing there. So is there a reason why the story won't work if we translate it to the Pacific Northwest? Now, this is a really smart guy. This is, I mean, this is so unusually smart uh, for people in the movie business. Uh, and uh, I said, no, there's no reason at all why you can't do that. Go ahead. And he said, thank you. And uh, they eventually filmed it in uh, British Columbia, uh, in, in which the American Northwest was, was seemingly portrayed. Um, I had more to do with um, the later films, the two and three, because I wrote novelizations for them. Um, uh, as an experiment and also because the story, the shooting scripts for two and three were, were pretty thin. Um, for example, in Rambo 2, he goes back to Vietnam to the prisoner of war camp from which he escaped. And this is mentioned in the film, but by God, he could be going anywhere. There is no reaction whatsoever to him going back to where he was held prisoner. And it seemed to me that this isn't true to the character. And when I was asked to do a novelization for the second film, that was one thing that I emphasized intensely, that he was going back. He knew the territory, but more than that, he had to, tough guy that he is, he had to overcome some serious psychological revulsion to returning to where he had been tortured. Um, and there were other things that I added to the mythology, so to speak, in two and three. And when I did the novelization for three, um, the scripts were still in process and there were some elements from the novelization that wound up being in the film. Um, so um, by then I was having more conversations with Andy and we often talked about the character and. Uh, I'm, I'm, my contribution was minor. I'm not suggesting that I was anyway uh, definitive, um, but I, I in, in a tangential way, I, I had something to do, which is with the, with the development of the character in films, which is not common. And I appreciate to hear that there was a certain amount of respect for them to call you. And they just... were classy. They were classy guys. Um, they, they understood that, um, and for a time, their company, Carolco, was the, the, the most dynamic company in, in Hollywood. And they understood that treating talent well is um, the way you make exciting pictures. Uh, and by contrast, I've had, I've had over the course of, I haven't had many movies made. I had the, the first Blood franchise and I had a book of mine called The Brotherhood of the Rose, which was turned into an NBC miniseries, which is the only, to this day, the only miniseries ever aired after a Super Bowl. Uh, so people say, well, it's too bad, you know, there weren't more. And you know, the fact is of those 28 novels, 25 of them have been optioned. Uh, several were sold. Michael Douglas outright paid a considerable amount of money for a book of mine called Extreme Denial and then did nothing with it. Um, and the process of taking a book 
and adapting it into movies um, is so complicated involving so many people that it's a miracle they ever get made. I once had the head of a studio who wrote the script for a book of mine called Testament and then soured on the industry and left the studio. Um, I mean, I, uh, uh, MGM optioned a, a book of mine called Burnt Sienna for Pierce Brosnan when he was James Bond. And the development process takes so long that by the time they were getting to what they might have considered a good script, Pierce was no longer James Bond. And so MGM then thought, well, what do we care? Um, and it's just fascinating uh, the number of reasons for why a project does not move forward. Um, in the bulk of these cases, once the deal was made, um, as one director producer said to me, now that you have signed the contract, we never want to hear from you again. Um, so it's a, on the other hand, I've had, I, had a handful of cases, I've had exceedingly good relationships, but they're, they're very rare. Well, my final two questions, I'll make this combined it. And I've heard in a different interview or interviews that your relationship with Stallone is more of a professional relationship, but there is interaction there, I guess, when a new project from the franchise was coming along. But also, when people mention your name, and I know it can be tough to self-reflect like this, how do you think your name and your works will be remembered? Well, in, in the first case with Sylvester uh, Sly, um, I, I have spoken to him on many, many, many occasions. Um, when he was making Creed in pencil in Philadelphia, uh, we talked. He was interested in noodling some ideas for a possible movie. Nothing ever happened with him, but it doesn't. The point is that he and I talked every weekend for it's been a while in my memory, seven weekends, anyhow, maybe longer. And we spoke on the phone for an hour, hour and a half, two hours. And uh, that was probably the longest time we've spoken. Um, over the years, we've spoken um, when, when Rambo 4 came out, uh, he called me and we spoke for about two hours and he told me what he was trying to accomplish in the film of Sam Peckinpah version of a Rambo film. And, um, we have an uh, excellent relationship, but I can't, my definition of a friendship is that I've been to someone's home, that I've had, uh, I've shared a meal with them in a restaurant or wherever. Um, and that's not the case with Slot. So I can't say that we're close in that way, um, but we have a respectful professional relationship and we have talked a lot. Um, people often ask me what he's like. He's very smart and he's very funny. Um, and he understands movie storytelling as well as anybody ever did. Um, and beyond that, I'm, I'm fond of talking about Richard Crenna's opinion of, of Sly's acting. So Richard, who's no longer with us, God bless him. Um, Richard had a very long career from a child actor on and he worked with everybody. And he told me that in his long career, there were only two actors. He, he was talking about male actors here, not female actors. He, only two actors who knew what to do in front of a camera, as opposed to emoting or interiorizing the character and all that. But they knew that there was a camera and you had to do something in front of it. And th that, those two people were Steve McQueen and Sylvester Stallone. And both were masters of using props, are in Slice case still is, and the use of eyes, Sylvester's main technique, main skill, main, main, main absolute ability involves is using eyes rather than dialogue in order to co communicate emotion. So I'm a big fan. Um, I, I like him a lot. 
and we've had very serious, uh, you know, substantive conversations, not this sort of thing that I, I told him years ago, I said, I, I won't relate to you as an actor, I relate to you as an author, as a, as a writer. So that's always the, the way we talk. And as far as my, me, um, you know, I'm, I, we all die. And after we die, people forget us. So my only chat task in life is to find something to do day after day in addition to my family, that makes me feel fulfilled. And that it happens to be writing. And I've been very lucky to have a successful career. Most authors, this is shocking, but it's true. Most authors earn about $6,000 a year. It is not something you want to go into if you think you're gonna be rich and famous and why anybody would wanna be famous is a whole other problem. Um, the, the, the task of writing is to, to find a way to, 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 to feel at peace every day. It's a form of meditation. And I've been fortunate because people like to read, as it were, my meditations, my, my, my stories. Um, I got into storytelling because I was raised in a very unhappy home and I slept under the bed while my mother and stepfather argued. And I told stories to myself and that stuck. And I eventually became uh, still telling stories to myself. Um, First Blood is, I, and Rambo are pretty much, I think, permanent, you know, 50 years from now, somebody will know who Rambo was. Um, it's really a hoot for me be, to be able to say that the miniseries of my book, The Brotherhood of the Rose, is um, the only miniseries ever broadcast after a Super Bowl. And it gives me great pleasure. There's a wonderful author named Jack Carr, C-A-R-R. -R. He was a SEAL and who became a, a, a thriller political writer, lots of action, but lots of interesting ideas about the way society works. And he regularly gives me, he's, he was just number three this week on the New York Times bestseller list with a book called The Devil's Hand. And, and Jack, whom I know well, um, credits me, The Brotherhood of the Rose, as being a book that influenced him so much that he became a seal, as the characters in the book are, and became an author uh, to try to do a, a, a modern version of what I'd done in The Brotherhood of the Rose. Um, so um, I, I have sort of embedded myself in thriller culture um, and, um, but, you know, I didn't go into it for the fame, certainly. Um, and I'm, it's not that I'm that famous, you know, compared to Sylvester. Um, and I, and I've been fortunate to earn a lot of money, but I never went into it for the money. Uh, so, you know, um, you were talking earlier about something, the truth, the four truths of Buddha, the first one begins life is suffering. And if we, if we adjust to that, life is suffering. Um, and how we then manage our lives with that understanding. Um, and for some people in the United States, the suffering isn't very manifest, but for sure in other parts of the world, they understand that very clearly. Um, if we understand that, then everything is in perspective. And what we do each day is to try to get along with dignity and fulfillment. And writing has been able to do that for me. Well, if folks want to see some of David's projects, upcoming previous uh, i know he's got q a up there he's got everything you can think of also his links for social media davidmorale.net we will put a link to that as well david thank you so much for the time this morning well thank you we talked about some important issues yes and i hope people can take away like i said as far as grief and just some of the issues we talked about i'm hoping people can learn from them but also try to apply it to their life in a good way. Yeah, well, our task, as I see it, is to get up every morning and be better than we were the day before. And that's pretty darn hard to do. But if you put the effort in, it can be done. Hey there, Friday fans. We know how much you enjoy the movies. Enjoy grabbing your Friday merchandise. 
and interacting with the Friday family, whether it be at conventions or during our particular watch-alongs. Well, when you're looking to get yourself masks, why not check out our friends over at Camp Blood Customs out of New York State and order your specific custom mask from any of the films. All orders are made specifically. Your needs and wants are. Make sure you find Camp Blood Customs on Facebook, Instagram, and all over social media and order yours today. Hey, it's me, Bill Mosley, and you're listening to Crazy Train Radio. Ride that crazy train and happy Halloween.